Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we're going to talk to the author Claire Evans about her new book, Broadband, the untold story of the women who made the Internet. I encourage each and every one of you to go out and buy this book. It comes out on March 6th, so a day or less from now. As I say on the episode here, this is really the best tech history book I've read in a long while, and you guys know I read them all. It's tech history the way I like to do it on this show, sort of looking at the stories of individual people to try to sketch out the overall architecture of the larger tech ecosystem. Of special note, considering our 90s heavy focus on this podcast, some of the stories included in this book are of companies like Word.com, which was a competitor to Feed.com, which we've previously covered, of course, and also Women.com, which was a competitor to iVillage, which, again, we've spoken about at length. But you're also going to get an amazing portrait of tech in the 1970s, of hypertext as a movement outside of the web, and stories about amazing women like Grace Hopper and Jake Feinler, people you should know about but maybe don't, Again, this is just really the best tech history book I've read in a while. I highly recommend buying it right away. There's a link to buy it in the show notes. But until then, please enjoy this conversation with Claire Evans. Claire Evans, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. I am honored to be here. Uh, What I would like to do before we get into the Internet stories in your book, which I'm going to plug right up front, is Broadband, the untold story of the women who made the Internet. Before I hit the internet ladies, mm-hmm. I would like to um, just have you give us a summary of three women in tech history that I feel like if anybody listening has not heard these names before, it's immediately time to Wikipedia. <laughs> um, but obviously the better thing would be to buy Claire's book. Yes. Um, but the three that I'd like to start off with are, first of all, um, Ada Lovelace. Yes. Okay. Ada Lovelace, the tortured, imaginative daughter of Lord Byron, um, the product of a brief and strange, tempestuous affair between Lord Byron and a a woman named Annabella Milbank, who was sort of an uptight, uh, you know, member of the British landed gentry, who was into mathematics uh, to the point that Byron would call her the princess of parallelograms, which is such a great, you know, kind of a diss. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway... Um, because Lord Byron was a poet. Lord Byron was a poet, and he was yes. like the Uro-romantic poet. You know, he was a real kind of louche character. So referring to math, he's saying it's the antithesis of what he valued. Exactly. Yes, okay. um, so they split up amid sort of like rumor that uh, Byron was having an affair with his own sister, or like half-sister. And Ada was raised uh, in seclusion from her father, like never even knew who her father was until after he died, I believe and um, was very rigidly mathematically trained by her mother because her mother wanted to sort of stamp out any trace of poetry from her daughter. And so she, was, she, had, t- she had tutors, she, she studied mathematics, she studied physics, she studied the sciences. Um, and we should be clear, this is in the early 1800s. Yes, yeah. yes, this is, the, this is the Victorian age. Yes, uh, prior to the Victorian age. Yeah, just yeah. shy. And um, she really took to it, uh, but she took to it in this way that was probably not what her mother had imagined. I think she was such a powerful mathematician that she saw the grace of it, the beauty of it, the sort of poetic, metaphysical quality of it, and she became obsessed with math. Uh, and when she was 19, she met Charles Babbage, the inventor, mathematician, physicist, etc., sort of sci- man of the sciences of her time, uh, who had just created the difference engine, very early computing machine, uh, never fully uh, executed. Neither of his machines really were. But she was really taken with it and, and sort of understood it really clearly and cleanly when no one else did at the time. This kind of complicated, very mechanical, very expensive mathematical engine. Uh, and she, she begged to be of service to them. She wanted to work on the machines. She wanted to understand the machines. She wanted to use the machines. She wanted to be part of it because she was so taken by it. Um, t- I mean, luckily for her, Babbage was kind of like this obstinate and difficult man um, who had a really hard time communicating 
the importance of his work to the scientific establishment and to his funders, which at the time were the British government. So she became kind of his like muse, communicator, translator, support system, even though she was much younger than him. And ultimately, she worked very closely with him uh, to create the notes on his most complex machine, the analytical engine, which was a very early computing machine, um, the first sort of general computing machine that could, that could compute variables instead of numbers. And she wrote this, these, these papers, these notes, explaining how it worked that many people characterize as, being, as containing the first computer programs uh, because she, she came up with proofs that would uh, demonstrate how the machine could be used to calculate Bernoulli numbers. And unfortunately, I mean, no, none of Babbage's machines were ever fully completed uh, or operational. They were, I mean, the analytical engine was basically conceptual at that point. It was, it was so far ahead of its time that it was an anachronism. But her papers outlived her, and, you know, in the 1950s, a lot of people in the commun- computing community realized how ahead of her time she had been and, and republished her notes, and she's sort of known as the first programmer. But she was also this fascinating character, too. She was very sick throughout her life she had um, you know what people in those days called hysteria which mm-hmm. turned out to be like uterine cancer but nobody checked uh, and she she started gambling and stuff late in life she there's some theories flying around sort of the historian community that she uh, she and Babbage wanted to use the uh, analytical engine to sort of calculate betting odds and stuff and, and, and raise enough money to fund its construction but uh, they ended up losing a lot of money and she lost a lot of money uh, and had to pawn the family jewels and stuff. It's a very sort of romantic, tempestuous story. And died young. And died very young. Died in her 30s. I think the same age her father died, mm-hmm. 32 or 33. To complete the romantic story. Mm-hmm. I, didn't you say in the book, have you seen um, the, the reconstructed engine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I saw it at the Computer History Museum. It was there a couple of years ago. And actually, if anybody gets a chance to see it, it, it really kind of uh, was impactful in the sense of like getting... Even even when you go and see like old mainframes and stuff, they're they're still in boxes. Like seeing mm-hmm. the idea that computers are or were conceived of as actual machines, yeah, was like this weird sort of epiphany thing. Totally. I yeah. mean, it's like these finely like machined little metal interlocking yeah. parts. It's like a giant clock, basically. I mean, it's it's very far from where we are now, but you can see the sort of the metaphor laid bare right. in a cool way. Um, okay, next. Grace Hopper. Grace Hopper. Another fascinating character. Gee, I should write a book about these people. <laughs> uh, Grace Hopper liked to call herself the third programmer of the world's first computer. She was uh, a mathematics teacher uh, in upstate New York, sort of well on the path to contented middle-class life when World War II happened. Uh, at the time, everyone she knew, her whole family, her husband, her brothers, they all enlisted, and she desperately wanted to serve the war effort, but because she was a mathematician, she was kind of like this, this valued profession. It was much more difficult for her to just enlist. She was also older, uh, not particularly physically fit, um, not great vision. You know, she was kind of like this wiry uh, lady in her mid-30s, and the Army didn't want her. But she eventually managed to enlist in the Navy. Uh, and she thought she would go off and uh, crack codes, you know, in some basement somewhere. That's what she imagined her skills would be put to use for, because she didn't know about computers, which didn't exist, really, in her mind. But the day she graduated from midshipman school, she was sent to Harvard, where she uh, immediately was sort of dispatched to the basement lab of Howard Aiken, who had just built the Mark I, which is one of the earliest uh, electromechanical computers. And she was just sort of put to work. I mean, that guy was another tough, tough customer, mm. Aiken. And he was just kind of like, well, what are you doing? Okay, where, do you have a place to live yet? You'll figure it out tomorrow. Like, get, get to work. Here's some problems. Um, solve them. And she, I mean, she had a PhD in mathematics from Yale. She wasn't a, you know... She could handle her stuff, but she wasn't. She didn't have any kind of engineering backgrounds, and there were no manuals for computers like that. So and she so, literally has to go into the guts of the machine and figure yeah. out how it works. And no one's giving her any help, of right. course. Uh, and the other people there are like these, like young, you know, Navy ensigns who are also kind of math- mathematically able, who are kind of like, you know, arguing with each other over who has to sit next to the old lady. But she shows up, and she basically bootlegs an engineering education all by herself. She takes apart bits. She stays late. She like looks at all the wiring diagrams and, this, and tries to make sense of it all. And then within you know, a few weeks, she's got a working understanding of how the machine works. And then she's creating programs for it. And she was, I mean, she was a coder in the sense that she would write these paper programs, and, um, and then they would, they would be like put onto the machine by a team of coders. But she right, ended up being the head programmer. What we, should, what we should say for context is, again, this is so early on, 
that first of all, each problem, it's not, it's, you can't do multiple, you can't go to a machine and ask for different questions. Yeah. Each problem has to be essentially coded, hard-coded in. Yeah, it's machine level. Each and every time, yes. Yeah, so there's no, there's no programming language. Right. It's like you're, you're operating at like the most granular possible level, just doing like machine code in the machine. Um, so, you know, nothing to, nothing to scoff at. Mm. And, but she, she and some of her working partners at the lab like developed some of the earliest sort of like batch processing techniques. She was one of the earliest people to do documentation of code because she was this really kind of, she had real horse sense, you know, and she really was, and she'd been a teacher, so she, it really mattered to her that things were easily communicated. And so she would make sure that everyone on the team understood what was going on by documenting all her code really thoroughly, and that became, of course, standard practice. And then after the war, she went off and worked on the UNIVAC one. She was the quote-unquote grandmother of COBOL. You know, mm-hmm. she really pushed for automatic programming advances. She really pushed for just the idea of programming languages that were a degree separate from um, you know, hard machine-level coding. Uh, she wrote some of the earliest compilers, and she was really a huge force. In I think a lot of people talk about her kind of wartime age. I think she's one of those figures that's pointed to often in computing history like look a woman was there and she's the first programmer or whatever right. uh, she did she, but she worked in the industry her whole career I mean she, she was like she was in her 70s and she was still in the Navy like coming up with you know uh, like writing all kinds of stuff like uh, she was made Commodore she was working until the day she died uh, a real a real badass if I can say that yeah absolutely uh, yeah uh, and a huge, hugely influential also mentored a lot of women in the industry at the time and uh, and really worked explicitly towards making computer programming more accessible to more people. I want to, so before we move on to Jake, like you make the point, um, and several people have made this point, that like, you know, early on in, in the computing industry, mm-hmm. we're talking about it now as an industry, that um, women were doing these roles that were considered um, not valuable, mm-hmm. and so they were assigned to women. Mm-hmm. The, the term computer literally referred to women that did the calculations mm-hmm. for ballistics and things during World War II and things like software and, and the upkeep of the machine was assigned to women because it's considered to be um, not the most important job, sort of busy work, secretarial style work. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's at that point in history not yet clearly differentiated between software and hardware because the machines, I mean, it's really, we're dealing with much more sort of machines than we are, uh, you know, a, conceptual machines that we have now. So, you know, the manipulation of cables and code and punch cards, all that stuff mm. just seemed like the way that a telephone operator manipulates the board, you know, it's it's really mechanical, it's really secretarial. Um, and it wasn't until it wasn't until, you know, these women came along and, and did an excellent job <laughs> at programming and really articulated it as not just, you know, an important force in you know, the development of the, their industry, but also just like an art form and a language and something that would have real kind of metaphysical value in the coming centuries. And that's when, you know, that's when it begins to slip away from their grasp is when mm-hmm. its value is recognized, which I think happens a lot mm-hmm. in many industries over and over again throughout history. Uh, Jake Feinler. Jake Feinler, one of my favorite characters in the book. Um, and someone I think does not get enough credit at all. I mean, I think Grace Hopper and Ada Lovelace, I mean, I would, you know, I would be like disbarred from the book, tech book writing club if I didn't like write about them because they're so canonical. But Jake is one of these people. I mean, she ran the Network Information Center at Stanford, which was kind of, for lack of a better word, like the central repository, the central office for the early ARPANET. You know, all of these people that were putting nodes on the earliest version of the internet, the ARPANET, um, they needed a place, a sort of a central hub to send all their documentation, a place where you know, they could give all their host information and it could be kept cataloged and clean. And if they needed to communicate with one another, uh, they would have to go through this office, which was called the NIC, the Network Information Center. Well, and the value of that being knowing what's on the network. Yeah, because in those early days, I mean, the, net- <clears throat> the network was just host computers at different sites that were online with one another, but there was no like, interface. There was no search engine. There was no way to connect... And, and to know what resources were available, because the ARPANET was designed as, as, an in, you know, as a resource-sharing network. It was so that computer scientists and engineers and scientists could use computers at a distance. It wasn't so that they could chat or like surf around on the network. It was so they could uh, access re- computing resources 
And in order to do that, they'd have to know what computing resources were available at the different sites. And the only way to do that was through this office, the NIC, which kept the resource handbook, which was kind of like the earliest technical documentation of what was on the ARPANET and who was on the ARPANET, uh, kept the kind of white pages of everybody that was working, uh, everybody's aliases on this network, um, kept all the papers, you know, like any kind of, anytime anyone wrote a scientific paper, a computer science paper about what they were doing on the network, it went to the, to the NIC. Uh, it also just, there was a phone there, so if you wanted to find out something online, you would call Jake and you would say, Jake, where's, you know, X host and where's mm -hmm. it, where's, where, how can I access these resources? And she would answer. For like almost 20 years she answered this phone. And it started out as this tiny office with just one phone and, you know, a handful of employees. And by the end of it, I mean, it was like this massive, you know, million, three million dollar project with phones running off the hook, like, 24, well, and also, 24 hours a day. Nick is still around today yeah. doing slightly different things. Slightly but different things. Yeah. But I love, I mean, I love thinking of her as being this kind of proto-Google in a way. I mean, she was the only person who knew where everything was and who everybody was. She knew more about who was online than anybody else. And because of that, she became this, like, this human resource. And I think that's so interesting. And she was so overworked, like, from the beginning. Because, of course, the ARPANET grew in this exponential way almost immediately especially once people started emailing each other, and she was the one like keeping track of it all and sort of making sure that the conversation stayed on track and making sure that like the important conversations were being archived and saved. And she has done a huge amount of work just preserving a lot of the documentation from that time, which would be lost if it hadn't been for her. And is still doing it, as we were talking and about, with still the doing it as a volunteer at the Computer History yeah. Museum uh -huh. in her 80s. Yeah. Cool lady. All right, so... Uh, I'm going to plug the book again to say that there's a lot of stories about a lot of interesting women in here, but we're going to jump to uh, my ballywick <laughs> a little bit. Um, so I, I feel bad, actually, that I have not reached out to Stacey Horn yet because she's here in New York. But um, let's tisk, hear... Tisk, tisk. Everyone seemingly knows The Well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whale had a counterpart here in New York called Echo, and mm -hmm. so let's talk about Stacey Horn and Echo. Yeah, so Echo was the East Coast hangout. It was the East Coast version of the well. I mean, Stacey herself was a well, well-being or whatever, a well-user in the early days. She was at the ITP program at NYU and, and discovered it, became addicted to it. But in those days, I mean, there was always the boundary of distance. It's difficult to think about now because the internet is so ubiquitous and so simultaneous for all of us, but it used to be that if you wanted to access an online resource on the East Coast, it was more, or on the West Coast, it was more expensive, you know, because it was a long-distance phone call. Well, outside your area code, yeah. It was, yeah. So everything was kind of like really fiercely localized in that way, which I think is interesting and, and kind of missing. For how each BBS had its own local culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a cool thing. Uh, you know, she couldn't afford to dial into the well every day and she was like not a big deadhead and that was the big part of the culture then so she started her own echo which she ran out of her apartment in Greenwich Village for a long time and um and, you know just a handful of servers and really early days I mean she was trying to get the interesting thing is that she was trying to get people that weren't like computer people online and that's you know that was hugely challenging in the late 80s in New York and she was trying to get artists and you know the sort of New York bohemia intelligentsia to come online and connect with each other and those people didn't have modems. Those people mm -hmm. didn't know how to use Unix, which is how Echo, what, what, what Echo was built on. And so she'd have to teach them. You know, she would like have Unix lessons in her apartment so that people could understand how to get online. Well, and she also taught herself too, because okay. she literally sets this up herself. Yeah. And programs it to a degree, but um, like so, she sets up this network to her own design. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's it becomes this like cool hangout for right. the early sort of digitorati and the sort of in the early Silicon Valley Well, and, and I think that that's important too, the, the point that you make that it's, if the West Coast scene was a lot of uh, deadheads <laughs> and sort of the hippie type, but also heavily male and heavily computer. Yeah. And the scene here with Echo was more journalist artists. It became the people that she was going after. And yeah. so it sort of had that different culture than the West Coast. Which is really interesting because I think when people talk about early network culture, there is this kind of like John Perry Barlow, like manifestation, manifesto of cyberspace, like sort of cyber hippies, freedom, post-deadhead, you know, Bay Area thing, which I love and I think is very romantic, obviously, and I'm super interested in, but there was this whole other culture happening on the East Coast that was much more, and just like it is today, you know, much more media-centric, much more writers, darker, you know, much more cynical. People, you know, people on Echo were real snarky. 
There was a lot of snark. There was There's a lot of like such a, a line. Uh, I've said it a thousand times. L you know, leading to Gawker. Yes, which totally. happens here. You totally. Know, of course. God, I should have made that point in the book. That's <laughs> <laughs> but it is yeah, totally that kind of New York media culture. Yeah. Um, well, the cynicism. Yeah. Which is also called snarkiness, but it is the. It's not where the West Coast always had the utopianism in terms of technology is can do anything. Everyone here has always been like, prove it. Mm. <laughs> or like, yeah, you're full of it, you know? Yeah, and I think that's great. I mean, I think there's different kinds of communities. And the, the whole point of it was to get like-minded people together to create networks that sort of went beyond uh, the strictly virtual. And the cool thing about Echo is that people hung out with each other and they met each other and they had regular meetups and they would go to bars together and they played softball in Central Park and they had you know, literary and digital culture salons at museums all around the city. And um, it was this very early interesting example of a social network that was both like, you know, anyone could access it from anywhere in the world if they wanted to, but it was also fiercely local and very New York. And it still exists, which is the coolest thing. Yeah, right. You can tell Ned into it still. You can tell Ned into it. It's, it's fascinating to see because it's just... And she's maintained all the archives, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah she's a yeah. purist about that stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. she's now a... She's always been a writer, but she now writes, like, historical nonfiction. So she's obsessed with history. And she, you know, she was writing a book about... Gosh, I can't remember what it's called, but an island off the, off the coast of New York that was, like, a penal colony or something, huh. like, for, for um, you know, in the, in, the, uh, in the 19th century. And she's always been really fascinated by how real people live. Uh -huh. And when you're writing about people from that era of history that weren't uh, part of, you know, culture, like weren't writing and publishing, that were just like the regular schmoes, the people that were in jail in the 19th century. You don't have very many accounts from their lives because, you know, the every man gets written out of history often, and, or every woman, I should say. Uh, but Echo is this cool example of just like regular people talking and living, and there's such a huge repository of of stuff there that's still totally easily accessible, like what they were what they were all doing and talking about the minute that like September 11th happened, or what they were doing when there was the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase. They were all there, you know, basically live tweeting it because that was their hangout. So it's a really valuable cultural historical resource, I think. So I, I always try to have us do our best to describe, as opposed to <laughs> yes. just say that it. So it, it's a. It's an online service sort of like AOL, but localized. It starts out as a BBS. Yes. And then when the web comes along, it stays a BBS. Yes, she never makes the jump to web. Yes. So it is, you dial in, mm -hmm. you have a handle. You have a handle. Um, you can... It's pure text. It's pure text. You can message other people. Can you trade files? You can't trade files, I don't think. But you can... There were a couple of things that I think were really ahead of their time. She had this thing called the Yo that was built into it to yo someone, it was basically like send them an instant message, mm -hmm. was within the system. So you could post like a message board um, in these sort of threaded um, conferences is what they called them uh, on different subjects, you know, arts, culture, you know, life, death, New York, whatever, uh, and, you know, Star Trek, and mi millions of sub-conferences. Mm -hmm. uh, but you could also message people directly sort of like in, 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 at, at an email's pace or you could message people instantly and, and, and sort of chat with them live. Mm -hmm. And she also gave people, I mean, when the web came along, she gave people like you know dot you know echo domains, but mm -hmm. she never put echo on the web yeah. because she couldn't afford it at the time, and she didn't think it. You know, it's it's weird to think about now. Like right. when the web comes along, people have to make a choice: are they going to make the leap to this new thing, or are they going to stick with the model that works for them? I mean, echo was a you know it was a dial-in service; people paid for it. It had a die-hard community. It was a self-sustaining business. Had forty-six thousand users at its peak. Yes. Say. Yeah. Um, but also uh, had moderators like AOL did. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the interesting part of the story is that she specifically targeted it not as a community for women, but that women, as opposed to being 10%, 15%, were a, a pretty large... Much half. Pretty much half. Pretty much half. I think 40%. Mm -hmm. Which at the time, I mean, when she first started Echo, I think the percentage of women online was like 10, at most mm -hmm. 10, 15 uh, but she still managed to have almost almost parity, which is pretty incredible for that time. Mm -hmm. And she really went out of her way. I mean, she made sure that every conference had, a, had two hosts, one man, one woman, that were just sort of deputized users that she thought were exceptionally funny or charming or charismatic. Uh, and she, she made access free to women for a couple of years. She went to women's groups all around the city and tried to get them to come online. She had like a Ms. Magazine conference on, on the service. She really wanted it to be a place where I mean, there's a really great, great quote in her book where she says something like, you know, uh, a lot of journalists at that time were saying that she 
made Echo friendlier to women because she wanted women to feel safe online. And she's like, bite me. I wanted to make it better, you know? Mm -hmm. I, wanted it the, I wanted my service to be better. That's why I wanted women there. Not because I wanted it to be like a, some kind of like refuge for delicate sensibilities because people were very, you know, forthright and frank with each other. Just the idea of having a male and a female moderator for each, like no man would have ever thought of that. I know, what a great idea. Yeah. What a great, I wish we still had that. Right. In moderated spaces online. And it totally made, it made things more civil. And also the fact that people, you know, knew each, in large percentage knew each other in real life mm -hmm. also made things a lot more civil. There was a lot less of the kind of shit posting. But they, they did deal with some of the stuff that we're still dealing with today in terms of kicking people out for misbehavior and... Yeah. Um, the story about, um, what is it, uh, uh, what's the name, the handle, you, about yeah, the transgender, you. You, a transgender user that comes on because she specifically had message boards for women. Yes, yes. So Go within ahead. Echo, there are many conferences that were public. Yeah. There were also private conferences, which I think is a very prescient aspect of its design. I think Stacy understood that when we're trying to communicate with people, we communicate differently in different groups. And so... If we are in a large public forum, sort of the general culture forum on Echo, mm -hmm. we're going to behave a certain way. We're going to talk a certain way. But if we're in a private group for just you know people of a certain age or Alcoholics Anonymous or just with our friends, we're going to talk differently. We're going to be more intimate, more forthcoming. So she built in the possibility of private space so that people never have to leave. Basically, like they would, if they want to take the party back to their house, they could do that. Um, and there were also spaces that were explicitly defined on gender lines. So she had one conference called. Uh, women in Telecommunications, WIT, which was just for women. And it's insane to think about this now, but she, she would make people actually call her on the phone so that she could verify that they were really women mm -hmm. before they joined. Because that's you know, the, that conference is where you would post if someone if someone was bothering you on Echo, if you were right. being harassed. It was like a place, it was kind of a whisper network sort of space where women could communicate with each other about what was going on in their community. And also just talk about, you know, girls, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. the powder room, if you will. There was also a male space called Mo Men on Echo. There was also like a slightly like snarkier girls only space called Bitch. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it posed this this problem when there was a trans female user that wanted to use the female only space. And you know, it's it's really interesting to look at now because I think nobody would even for a second hesitate about letting the trans user in. I mean, obviously we've I think we've all become much more sophisticated in our understanding of the trans experience, but at the time you know, the women on Echo had no idea what to make of it. They were like, well, if our, if our gender, is, is our gender part of our body? Is our gender part of our socialization? What happens when we bring gender online? Are we, are we can we conceal who we are? Can we, you know, like these discussions of, our, does it matter if we're male and female mm -hmm. on the internet? Mm -hmm. Like, what difference does it make if we're just communicating via text? Like, there was all of these new questions about what it meant to express and experience gender in text-specific, you know, online spaces. And so they debated at length about whether or not they should let this poor woman in. Uh, also because they were concerned that if they did, it would bring in other sort of male impersonators. A right. big problem on the yeah. early internet, too, was uh, men impersonating women to sort of lure women into We're going to get to that in a okay. second, but go on. Uh, so eventually they did let her in, and, but that, then it, was, you know, it had taken so long at that point that, that, it, that the trans user, Embraceable You, left. And it goes, to, it goes to show how far we've come, I think. Uh, and now I think it's this weird thing where I think Stacy regrets it a great deal that there was ever any hesitation. But yeah. also, I mean, a place like Echo was a place where people could work out their understanding of what it meant to be a person online in a community through words with like a great deal of patience and civility, ultimately. And I'm sure it, it could have gone a lot worse. Yeah. Um, the, the pretending to be women online... Mm -hmm. we, we totally did that when I was a kid. <laughs> All the time. And that's why I was so interested to see that because I don't feel like I've, I've seen that written about a lot of other places. But in my case, it was on Prodigy yeah. know, at age 11 or 12 or whatever. And so if you're if you want to get the sex chat going because you you know you want to see what this is all about yeah. you're all sitting around laughing so you, we would we would pretend to be women constantly because that was the quickest way to get shit going yeah for sure i yeah. mean yeah it's interesting i mean there's lots of examples of that on the early on not so much on the web but on places like multi user domains <coughs> muds and moos and on irc uh, and on bbs like people just really kind of wanting to see how the other half lives partially, yeah, yeah. or just kind of trolling and playing around because they're teenagers. Right. There's lots of reasons why people would do it, but it did ultimately make it quite difficult for real women, not real, you know, women to find each other mm -hmm. uh, in those days. And when there were so few women online, you know, it's valuable to find peers and to find sure. a community. And so it was this strange balance between, you know, you want, 
to, you want people to have the freedom to express themselves. Part of what's so tantalizing about the medium is that you can be whoever you want to be, you know, be you, be you male, female, trans, or anything in between. You can express yourself exactly how you want to be understood, and that's a beautiful thing. That's a lost, I think, on the modern internet. Yeah, I wonder because I was I, my instinct is to say the same thing, or that that's still constantly going on in just different gradations. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Still going on the idea that you're you're pretending you're trying on different personas, different identities, different things. It's like everybody does that now without thinking. Yes, that's true. But yeah. we're, we are still followed around by our real names yeah. a lot more than people were in those days. In those days I mean, so, Echo had accountability. Yeah. I mean, you could have a username, but you still your real name was still there to, to be discovered by anyone. But yeah, there's, I think there's a lot less sort of, um, I think it's less freeing in a creative way now. I think now we're just all just sort of trying on personalities, trying to figure out like what's going to get us the most likes or what's going to get us you know, seen in, in, in the sort of larger marketplace. Whereas then it was much more like, what can we invent? What, what can I discover about myself by trying on this different persona? Like, what will I learn about what it means to be a woman by pretending to be a man? What will I learn about what it means to be a man by pretending to be a woman? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those things are, I think, a little bit lost still. Um, in the early hypertext era, mm-hmm. and we're talking about the era before the web, mm-hmm. where in the late 80s, mid 80s, uh, hypertext is sort of a, an academic conceptual thing that people have been trying to bring forward for several decades. Yeah. Um, this, I love the story about, what is it, uh, the, my notes, oh, microcosm. Yes. Because it sounds like the browser that we should have had. Yes. Uh, tell me the story of Dame Wendy Hall. Okay, so, uh, well... She's a very interesting character as well, but she was an early um, sort of hypermedia, hypertext pioneer. There was this period of time before the web as we know it where people were thinking about different ways of navigating information and making sense of large databases of information. Um, hypertext was the sort of thing that seduced the academic community the most. And it's a very, I mean, even after working on this book for so long, like my understanding of what hypertext represented to people is still quite nebulous because it was a lot of different things at the same time. I mean, mm-hmm. Some people were using hypertext as a sort of like idea processing engine to, cr- to compose writing, to create sort of non-linear writing or to, or to workshop ideas in a kind of mind mappy kind of way. Um, some people were using hypertext uh, to navigate contained databases. Some people were using it in a kind of scholarly context to sort of understand the connections between different historical and literary or things. Or in the early... Uh, uh, Laserdiscs and DVDs um, had Bob Stein on, so yes. people want to hear about that sort of stuff because he talks about hypertext using it in media yeah, totally. and hypermedia and things like that. So it's this very kind of nebulous framework that can be put on, upon information. But generally speaking, I feel like hypertext is the practice of turning, trying to turn information into knowledge through mm-hmm. connection, linking and connection, uh, the link being the central metaphor. But Wendy Hall was uh, a mathematician, a mathematics professor uh, in the UK who became really sort of enamored by hypermedia after she came across this thing called the BBC Domesday Disc Project, which is uh, this early multimedia laser disc that the BBC made uh, that demonstrated some hypertext principles, but really, it really just, um, it was like an index of life in the UK at that time. And you could sort of navigate it uh, in these sort of early sort of walkabout experiences. And you also got a lot of information from people submitted from all across the country. So she... She fell in love with this idea of like linking ideas and images on screens, which and she was coming from mathematics and kind of a more traditional classical computer programming background. So she had never seen computers used in that way, and this was like right at the ascendance of the personal computer. And she wasn't taken seriously by any of her peers in academia because for them, you know, you had to be writing compilers, you had to be writing programming languages to be taken seriously as a computer scientist. But she wanted to do media. Um, she ended up going to the U.S. She met Ted Nelson. She found out that you know this thing that she thought was so interesting had a name and had a community and started developing uh, a hypermedia system uh, in the mid-'80s called Microcosm, which at first was just a kind of database browser for a collection of materials that her university had on the life of this man, Lord Mountbatten, who was a kind of fascinating British historical figure. Uh, but she ultimately ended up building this very kind of complex and robust system for navigating information, which very well could have become, you know, the web browser that we all deserve, but never quite was. But 
it was built on a completely different, and all hypertext in those days was built on this completely different operating principle, which is that it was going to be um, constructive rather than just passive. So you would navigate this, these bodies of information creating links as you go. And those links would then be kind of like maps that you could share with others that would help others understand your experience of this information, help others make connections between ideas that they hadn't seen themselves. Uh, and everything was built around this idea of a link base, a link database. So instead of there being these links embedded in a document like we have on the web, where it's just like you click on something, it goes one place, and that's where it goes. And if, if something happens to the destination, then that link dies, rots in place, and is lost forever. Instead of that, all links existed in a database that was centrally maintained and updated. So you, you would have links that would move with the system and evolve with the system. And there could be more than one destination for a link. So That's the key point, I yeah. think, is that um, like the way the web came about, Tim, Tim Berners-Lee always says that he meant to fix this, but it's, it's unidirectional yeah. as opposed to linking back and forth, and so that's why you have broken links is because it's, it's not multidimensional. Yeah. And this, her system was multidimensional. Her system, you could go both ways. You could go, yeah, you could go back and forth. You could go to multiple directions at once. So if there was, and, and like a link would follow a concept around. That was the thing that I think was really interesting. So if you had a system, I, I use this example in the book, if you had a system a database all about the life of Gandhi. Every time the word Gandhi shows up in the text, you can click on that and it takes you to a robust, centrally maintained, updated corpus of information, of user-submitted information about Gandhi. And every, every time you see that word in the text, the system would automatically put the, that linking information on it. So it would be, instead of these, like, these sort of one-way paths all around, it would be these, this kind of like interesting, evolving, robust, like collaborative, constructive link system. I mean, ultimately, it's it probably could never have been executed at scale mm -hmm. to become what the web is today. But just the idea that there there is another way to think about links. I think links are they're so they're so ingrained in the way that we think about how we navigate information. And to think like, oh yeah, well, what if a link just went both ways? That doesn't seem, you know, that that changes everything. That changes yeah, the whole yeah. internet. Uh, and yet, you know, and that that was like sort of common operating sort of knowledge in the hypertext community. Like, of course links go both ways. And when the web came out, they were like, well, this is never going to work. The, you, links, the links only go one way. What's the point of this? You have a, a fantastic story, which we're going to alight over because I want people to read it in the book, <laughs> about um, Tim Berners-Lee showing up to the hypertext conference in, like, it's 91 or 92? 91, yeah. 91. And basically, basically everyone blowing him off because it's kind of, they're, they're miles beyond what he's Demoing. <laughs> yeah, they're making these really complex systems yeah. that are really mostly designed for scholars, academics, and uh, in, you know people who are thinking about information in this really like intense and quite contained way. Uh, and they see this thing like, oh, these links, these links only go one way. This is like it was amateur hour. You know, mm -hmm. this is never going to fly. And you need an internet connection. Well, that's expensive. You know, like this isn't going to go. And then within a year, the web is like the central right. standard, which is crazy. And to then think like about. within two years, he's giving the keynote at that <laughs> conference. Yeah. Um, my favorite story, uh, and I don't know who I want to start with first because it's a story of two people intertwined here. Mm -hmm. Let's start with Marissa Bow, yeah, because we can come back to Echo. Um, okay, she's a well. Actually, first of all, <laughs> she's a Plato user. So a couple episodes ago, we talked to the author of the recent book on oh, Plato. Oh, cool, 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 cool. So people listen to that. Uh, her, her father worked at Com Control Data Corporation. Mm -hmm. if people remember that episode, and so she was using a Plato terminal in her home. Which is crazy, because nobody really right. was at that time. And so this is where she falls in love with this idea of talking to people through screens. Yeah. Um, which then she also, she didn't like well as well, <laughs> but then finds Echo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, is Miss Outerborough yes. on Echo. Mob. Yeah, she is, she's great. Um, she tried to get on the well in, in the early well days, and had the same reaction, like allergic to deadheads, you know, couldn't handle it. Too much of a New Yorker to enjoy it. Found Echo, became kind of the queen of Echo. Um, she was one of the, she was the host of the Central Culture Conference, which was the big conference. Um, one of the earliest, I think, kind of online influencer types. I think Clay Shirky called her the Henry James of the alley. And she was always at these cultural events. She was really synonymous with Echo as kind of like this great user because she was really good at getting people to tell stories. She was really fascinated by people's stories. She could really keep the conversation going. She was a good host. I mean, the way mm -hmm. that anyone who throws a party, you know. Uh, 
but yeah, it, she she didn't she wasn't in like the internet world uh, professionally. She just like loved using Echo and was like besotted by Echo. All right, let's leave her there. Okay. Jamie Levy. Jamie Levy, another wonderful human being. Jamie Levy it was like a latchkey kid from the Valley who went to ITP to do multimedia. Uh, kind of like was one of the first people at ITP to do like more sort of multimedia arts interactive stuff. And we should say ITP is at NYU and yes. it's a very uh, prestigious and important sort of telecommunications yes. program. Um, the bedrock of, of Silicon Alley in its day and still like an incubator of some of the right. most like interesting and talented people in, in tech, I think. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so she made, um, you know, she was like a punk, she was a punk, punk rocker, like hardcore punk rocker, you know, always wore flannel shirt, you know, spiked her hair, rode around on a skateboard, like deep kind of valley girl accents, just a wonderful character who really, I mean, the press really jumped on her in the, in the dot-com bubble I knew days. of her in the day, yeah. yeah she was the queen, she was the Kurt yeah. Cobain of the internet, she yeah. always said. But um, yeah, she went to ITP and started making these floppy disk interactive magazines uh, called Cyber Rag that were just like punk rock zines on floppy that were some of the earliest um, you know, interactive magazines. And what she was doing with HyperCard, Hypertext, Hypermedia, uh, was very proto-web design, basically. I mean, she was making these graphic pages that you could navigate that had music samples, that had you know, reviews of concerts, that had... Um, ga early games. I mean, she was really, really talented at, at interactive media in her day, and she became this kind of rock star figure. Uh, uh, maybe we'll put a pin in that. I well, guess. And, and when she sees when she sees Mosaic and she sees the web, she realizes that she's already been doing it all these years. Exactly. Yeah, and she very smartly uh, quit doing floppy disks and started doing HTML. But also comes to New York. Yes, she's in New York. There's actually the one more amazing story from her floppy disk years that I feel like I have to sure. tell, which is that she made these floppy disks and sold them at like indie bookstores and record stores in New York and San Francisco and L.A. And um, they became kind of a, a hit thing. They were featured in Mondo 2000, and so she got all these or orders. She sold thousands of them. Mm -hmm. um, she made a, you know, and I, I went to her house and she showed me this binder she had of like all the letters that people sent to order the floppy disks who had read about it in Mondo. And it was like people like Chris Marker, like filmmakers, artists, like really the sort of cutting edge of the sort of intelli New York, but also international sort of digital intelligentsia. Mm -hmm. Everybody wanted her floppy disks, though they were so ahead of their time. And she still has all this stuff, which is so cool. Uh, but one of the people that really wanted a floppy disk was Billy Idol, who had at that time was making a cyberpunk mm -hmm. record called Cyberpunk, which is an interesting thing to go back and look at. Um, he was posting on the well and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he he well, like, he and Peter Gabriel both at the same time were doing that multimedia stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't blame him. It, yeah, it was yeah. like the thing that was in vogue at the time. It's like an amazing time capsule now. But he tapped Jamie to make him a floppy disk because so there's a Jamie Levy Billy Idol cyberpunk floppy disk that mm -hmm. was technically the first interactive press kit, digital press kit. Uh, and also, it's just like an amazing thing if you ever have a chance to look at. Um, so you must have read that book, um, what is it, something Slackers, something about the, the New York scene, the Silicon Alley scene. It's uh, called Slackers? No, it's not called, it's, um, I'll look it up later. Um, but Digital Hustlers? Digital Hustlers, yeah, that's yeah. what it is. That's a great book. Um, because uh, they talk a lot in there about the, the parties that she starts mm -hmm. to throw, and a lot of people credit her with, as we've talked about on this show before, there's this multimedia industry that is here because Madison Avenue is here mm -hmm. and the art scene is here. And at these parties, she turned on this whole scene to the web. Yeah, she would throw these ra like these cyber raves called mm -hmm. Cyber Slacker in her loft on Avenue A or something. And, uh, you know, she'd have DJs play. People would, like, skateboard around in the loft, and she would show people, she would show people the web on her computer. She had a hacker friend of hers. Um, set up a connection, and they people would gather around, like all these people from the New York scene would gather around her little computer and look at the web for the first time. And for certain people, that was like a huge conversion moment. She really turned a lot of people on um, to the possibilities, the creative possibilities of the web. And she was these parties were kind of the earliest of the alley parties uh, in their day. Mm -hmm. I really want to bring them back. That's yeah. something I want to do on this book tour. Jamie and I have been talking about like throwing a cyber slacker party. Well, you know, LA. speaking of um, the pseudo... Uh, offices were just like six blocks that way, oh, right on right on Houston and Broadway, right. Uh -huh. um, so that building's still there, so we could find the sixth <laughs> floor or whatever it was. Or no, they were in the basement for that big party. God, 
We could probably get some kind of Bitcoin guy, you know, some yeah, kind right. of cryptocurrency millionaire. Oh, this is fund. a bad day to say it. <laughs> oh, no, really? Is Today down? is Are we uh, down? the J- January 17th when uh, it's down 50% in the last I can't. whatever days. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. I can't It'll be up fi- 100% by the time we say it. If there's any crypto millionaires out there that want to throw a, a 2.0 cyber rave with yeah. me, let me know. Have you seen the documentary about that party? Uh, yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we live in public. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, I believe that Jamie gets commissioned to do, now that the web is around, do what you've done. Let's do a magazine online or something, and she yeah. brings Marissa in. Yes, so early days, really early days online publishing, web publishing. She's kind of like this, you know, exciting digital figurehead youth culture person. She gets tapped by, you know, a, a publishing venture to create an online magazine, one of the earliest online magazines. Uh, she hires Marissa to come on and be the editor because Marissa's good at words and Jamie's good at interactivity. So they build this thing called word.com, which, you know, if you ever have the opportunity to trip down on the Wayback Machine, there's a lot of it is archived as well uh, at a website called deadword.com. It's one of the most pioneering, fascinating, incredible things to ever be published, I think, on the web. I mean, oh. it's they amassed a roster of the most talented people in New York at that time to go really crazy. I mean, they had dot-com money, so they were just going nuts, like making the most interesting, weird, interactive stuff with with no real eye to... I mean, in those days, no one really knew what online publishing was. Mm-hmm. There was this sort of misbegotten idea that because uh, magazines online could be sold... Like, you could sell subscriptions infinitely. That you'd never have to worry about warehousing print magazines. So you could, all these people thought you could get rich publishing mm-hmm. on the Internet because you could just sell subscriptions over and over and over and over again and they would never run out of magazines. They would just well, and all everybody thought at the beginning was there's no, there's no fixed cost in terms of paper and distribution, so yeah. clearly we should just be able to print money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which didn't turn out to be the case, of right. course, as we all know, as we all live in the decline of, of, of publishing in general. But um, in those days, you know, it's like, okay, well, what can we do with this medium? And I think a lot of, you know, there were a lot of early efforts, interesting early efforts, but word went all the way with pushing the medium as far as it could go. So they had these really, like, ahead-of-its-time interactive things, some of the things that were just, like, so processor-intensive. You know, they would crash people's computers because it was just too much. But, you know, stuff like they had this a really amazing chat bot called Fred the Webmate, which actually still runs. Uh, if you if you can like load the Wayback Machine at the right exact page, mm. like there's there are copies of it that still run, and it was this amazing like sort of Eliza on steroids character, this weird little animated man named Fred the Webmate, who was just like a, a paranoid, burned out New Yorker who was sitting in his apartment smoking cigarettes, and you could you could talk to him about his personal life. They're, and you'd but respond. they're parodying the the Clippy guy. From, yeah, they're parodying. It's kind of a hybrid of like an Eliza and the Clippy guy, mm-hmm. and then just their culture at the time, which was just like. Are you trying to say Alexa? Eliza, no, Eliza, the chatbot. Okay. The early chatbot. Gotcha. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry. No, no I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, it's like, is she saying Alexa? No, okay, sorry. No, yeah, they were, no, they were really into that, the idea of the, of the early sort of chatbot therapist. Yeah. But they, like, the, they created this thing that was the inverse of that. It was someone who needed therapy, really. Like, wow. you, were talking to, you were talking to someone. You were the therapist if you were mm-hmm. talking to Fred mm-hmm. the Webmate. So stuff like that. Or they, would, they had, you know, they ended, eventually they ended up making this game called Sissy Fight, which is this really amazing um, early web sort of multiplayer game mm-hmm. that actually just recently kickstarted and came back because it was such a cult thing people loved. Um, they were really inventive and, and did a lot of really pioneering stuff. A lot of it is lost, but a lot of it remains. What's the, I, I didn't know that there was, what's the archive site? Deadword.com. Deadword.com. Yeah, the, the man who was the art director of Word for many years, Yoshi Sodoyeka, who's now like this very cool avant-garde video artist, uh-huh. he archived a bunch of it. But it was, it was this crazy bubble thing where they had, you know, they had this publishing concern that thought they were going to get rich. Uh, when it became apparent that they were not going to get rich, they sort of tried to switch to an advertising model. Then there was this kind of gold rush of selling ads on the on the web, or really mm-hmm. ad sales on the web. No one knew how much they would be worth, you know. So mm-hmm. it was just like make up a number and right. see what people will pay. Uh, you know that didn't ultimately work out. They the company folded. They were sold. Six months later, they were bought back by a fish waste fish meal processing right. company called Z- Zapata Corporation. Zapata, and the fact the fact I remember now articles about Zapata where they're like things. It, it was an example at the time of this is we're so clearly in a bubble because. <laughs> 
a company that makes fish oil or whatever the heck it is <laughs> thinks it's going to reinvent itself into a 21st century media company. Yeah. yeah. And they almost did. You know, yeah. they had a lot of money and they bought a lot of like prestige websites in the time. Uh, you know, they would they took out ads in the New York Times that said, we will buy your website. Mm -hmm. And they bought Word. They brought everybody back. They ran Word for another three or four years. And then, and then, then it folded once again. But yeah, it was a very sort of a totem of the bubble. Right. Because so they initially have this company that bankrolls them to do whatever they want because no one knows mm -hmm. what to do at the beginning. And then when the bubble's at its height, they get bankrolled again because people think that they're going to get rich. And yeah. so it's this sort of beautiful story of this time period where, like Pseudo mm -hmm. um, and like a couple other sites, again here in New York, <laughs> where um, people were ju just had the money to do whatever they wanted and be creative. Yeah. And like, that's the scene that I miss. It's fascinating. I yeah. mean... There have been bubbles since, but it's there's a, a sort of unique confluence of circumstances here in New York where it was not just like people making startups and getting rich. It was like artists, a lot of artists and you know bohemians and writers doing exper really experimental stuff, really I think defining what the medium can do, sort of establishing a precedent for what interactivity on the web looks like and feels like, and how to build sort of personality and character and community around the technology, which is super important. Um, and then, you know, when the bubble burst, all that was lost. Can I quote directly from your book? <laughs> yes. The crash didn't just gut an industry. It took down the generation of creative people who found miraculous employment doing what they loved and who, in the process, defined the cultural parameters and interactive possibilities of the web. That's pretty much what I just said. That's... <laughs> <laughs> um, another company, this will be the last one that we'll go into. Okay. And then I'll let you get out of here. Uh, women.com yeah and again for listeners I'm going to reference I, I know I didn't write down what episode it was but Nancy Evans great episode who uh, uh, was one of the founders of uh, iVillage.com this is basically a Coke and Pepsi story yes but tell me because women.com got started way before iVillage did yeah women.com was another kind of uh, it began as something called Women's Wire which was the first online destination specifically marketed to women it was founded by uh, two female well users, Nancy Ryan, who was one of the earliest uh, ad admins, sysops on the well, uh, who got kind of burned out on how dude-heavy the well was and wanted to start something just for women. She met uh, another well user named Ellen Pack, who was sort of a young MBA person with an nest egg, and they, they bought the servers and they started this company, uh, Information, Resources, and Exchange for Women. And it was kind of like a very successful little pocket community for, for some time. It was a dial-in BBS, first-class BBS, so you know women had access to stuff like news wires about uh, news issues that were relevant to women's interests, you know, transcripts of Hillary Clinton's speeches, information about you know, breast cancer awareness and, and domestic violence resources and resources about you know, ch child rearing, things that were very sort of women-centric, but also just general as well. There were male users on Women's Wire. 10%, mm -hmm. I believe, was mm -hmm. the number. Exactly the inverse of the rest of the internet. Uh, and it was this kind of like explicitly political, kind of feminist, Bay Area, sort of post-second wave feminism <coughs> uh, community. And then when the web came along, uh, the possibility of jumping ship and moving, to the, moving Women's Wire's little world to the web uh, became something that was interesting to at least some of the people involved with Women's Wire. They brought in like a sort of very MBA-centric CEO named Marlene McDaniel, who basically they took everything that was on Women's Wire. They kind of divested the community aspect of it, as you know, in in a, I think a fairly judicious way for the time, and then made the leap to the web again. Not a very obvious leap at the time. A very huge risk. No real sense of if there's going to be financial reward at all. I mean, abandoning a, a paying community of subscribers in order to start putting quote-unquote content online is a, big, is a big step. That's the key thing, I think, entrepreneurially, because they're all, you're charging by the hour. Mm -hmm. Very good business mm -hmm. when you're an online service. Totally. And you're going to the web, which everyone believes is free anyway, so you have to, be, you have, to have faith that the advertising dollars will make up for that subscription. Money. Exactly. Yeah. And that, you know, they had to, I think, you know, they have to they had to invent the business model, and the business model had to be advertising. That was the only way. So it's this interesting story because it's this community that was founded as an alternative to you know, the very male communities that were accessible on the Internet in those days, and also as an alternative to the sort of like puffy um, you know, women's magazine kind of content that was out in the world. 
And then it kind of, over the course of just the forces of entrepreneurial capitalism, just kind of became exactly what they had tried to mm -hmm. escape. Um, because they had to sell ads, they had to sort of start like identifying their market demographic in a really clear, much clearer way. So it went from, you know, it went from community to selling eyeballs, like like a magazine. Mm -hmm. And there was this interesting moment, I think, when when the web, when women started coming to the web, because there was a moment, like a sort of sea change that happened where women came online in a major way. Uh, and, you know, marketers at the time were going nuts for it because, you know, women control a lot of consumer spending. And they're like, well, we can we can advertise to all these women. This, it's a women's world wide web. Like, let's sell them lotion and jeans and mm -hmm. parenting tips and whatever. Uh, and so there's this kind of this sort of rise and fall of, of what it meant to have female-specific spaces online in the early days. In the early days of Women's Wire on the Web, when it became women.com, great URL to have, yeah. um, you know, it was, it was still a content destination for women. They still had forums. They had a lot of resources that were useful. But the, the more sort of the bubble expanded, the more it was like, okay, let's partner with Cosmo. Let's partner with Good Housekeeping. Let's, let's start, you know, let's start connecting to e-commerce. Let's sell really expensive ads, let's IPO, and then it's like, mm -hmm. you know, then of course that's the story writes itself. But right. So they, I mean, but they, they were super early. Because they were like really early. Because by 96, they're getting like 7 million visitors, which is huge. They're getting, they're getting the most, they're getting a huge amount of traffic. Yeah. They have women's eyeballs like nobody else on the entire internet. The only thing that really keeps them up at night is iVillage is the biggest competitor right. at the time. And it's interesting to think about this now, I mean, that there was this sense that because there's two websites for women, like they can't both succeed. And there was oxygen too. Yes, yeah, and oxygen. Yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. Uh, but yeah, I, I think because both of those sites were trying to be portal sites, there was this mm -hmm. sense of like, well, there can only be one right. landing page for women on the web. Uh, now, of course, whatever. Like, women look at women look at all of the internet. It's not like you have to go to the special place to like launch yourself on, onto your online experience. But it, you're right because it was everybody was trying to chase that same idea. Uh, Net Noir was for mm -hmm. African Americans mm -hmm. and. Um, actually, there was a successful company that because they they ended up primarily focusing on the South American market. But yeah, so everybody's trying to dice up this market again for eyeball purposes. Yeah, well, they're just trying to. I mean, it is this really tumultuous and interesting period where everyone's trying to understand what the hell the business model is for mm -hmm. the web and and how to kind of cash in on this clearly rapidly expanding bubble without getting you know without falling by the wayside. And you know, there's that the story of Women.com and iVillage ends tragically. They both, I mean, iVillage IPOs, spectacular IPO, one of the like the most splashy IPOs of the period. Women.com IPOs like six months later, not so not so hot, mm -hmm. but still holds its place. Mm -hmm. But like within a very short period of time, iVillage buys Women.com. They fire half the staff. Uh, then iVillage becomes like a TV show. I mean, it kind of just all peters out. But. Like everything else from all those other companies, yeah. But you know, both both I, I think iVillage and Women.com are responsible for bringing yeah. a huge percentage of women online at that time, and I think that's not something to, not something to shake a stick at. And as you point out, uh, I think it's around 2,000 the women online outnumber men online, yep. and it's probably never gone back. <laughs> you know? Yep. So, all right. Um, so, how did you come to write this book? I love that you asked me that last. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I have been a tech writer, science, science journalist and tech journalist for a long time. Um, and my favorite thing in the world is this kind of book. I mean, not specifically my book, but I love, I love internet history. I'm a huge fan of the pod. Uh, love all, my favorite kind of books are uh, books about the, the early internet specifically. I think it's just a fascinating, infinitely fascinating thing. I am at the age where... I'm old enough to remember life before, mm -hmm. but young enough that I, you know, I, most of my life has been lived. You open the book with a great description that I think kind of only will, well, maybe not only, <laughs> will ring true especially for 90s kids. Yes. Yeah, about having kid. that computer in your room mm -hmm. and discovering the outside world, that, the, that an outside world exists, you discover it because of that computer. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, it was transformative for, yeah. I'm, I'm sure, everyone in my generation. I'm no, no exception. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the internet has always been a huge part of my life, but I have also seen how much it has changed in my lifetime. And I think about, you know, what it was like to be online even, even 10 years ago, how different it was as an experience as a woman, but also just as a human person using, using the media. So I think I wanted to 
I don't know. I mean, I think it's important that people see themselves in the history of something as important and transformative as the web. And a lot of these great books that I love so much about internet history kind of gloss over female contributions. But for me, it's not so much about like identifying the women who made contributions, like you know, the first person to do blah, blah, blah. Right. For me, it's about finding women who were just there and understanding those periods, those sort of seismic changes through their perspective. Because there are always, always women there, you know? Yeah. It's just, and part of the detective work of this book was like picking a period of history that I've had read about a lot, like for example, the Arpanet days, and just being like, well, where are the, where are the women? Uh -huh. Like, oh, they're here. Yeah. What are they doing? Yeah. They're concentrated in this weird little corner. Why are they here? What are they contributing? Mm -hmm. And then realizing, oh, actually, they're contributing this very important thing that was just slightly ignored because they were in this sort of more, you know, I don't know, more like, more on the information side than on the yeah. engineering side, perhaps, or something. Uh, so I think it's, it's delightful to uncover these little pockets mm -hmm. uh, of reality and to realize that women have just been there all along, living and feeling and being and contributing in, in our own ways. Which is what I liked about it in the sense that it's not, it's very much not a book of, oh, you didn't know, but the first person to do this was a woman. The first person to do that was a woman. It was, like, it, it, and again, I, I want to point out, we skipped over a lot of eras that are in this book. <laughs> it is in each and every one of the eras you're, you're saying, who are the women that are creating what's in this era? Yeah. But also the women that are consuming in this era, what are they doing? Yeah, what, what does it mean experience? to them? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to write like a polemic, and I and I think it's really boring when, you know, like these of individual women from tech history are pointed to as these kind of like paragons, like well, Grace Hopper did it, so yeah, you know, there yeah. we're good. We got the one woman; it's it, fine. Exactly. You get into this. Tokenism. That's a trap, I think. Yeah. It's much more interesting to think about like just what people's lived experiences are and how these technologies are affecting their lives and what what opportunities they are presenting for them. Um, how they help them understand the world, how they help them connect with their peers, friends, families, and communities. Um, you know, what value it brings to their lives. Because ultimately that's what it's all about. I mean, I think it's, it's easy to look at computing history uh, and internet history as just like, a, you know, a series of boxes or whatever. But mm -hmm. it's, it's a human thing. You know, we, we, we bring it to life and what we do with it and how we live it, that's what actually changes the world, not necessarily how the systems are built, mm -hmm. although that has value, of course, as well. But those things work in concert with one another, and they always have to, the human, the human side and, and the, the more sort of technological side. You kind of have answered this, but was there any, how did you select whose stories? Was there a theme you were looking for? <sighs> you know, or? it's funny you say that. I, early in the writing process, I was really sort of um, paralyzed by this feeling that I had to include every single human contribution, female human contribution to the history of computing. I was yeah, like, yeah. got to get it all in there because these people have been forgotten and if they are forgotten again, I'm going to feel awful. Mm -hmm. So I had this kind of like encyclopedic paranoia about just making sure that every, every name and date was in there. And it made it an impossible read. It made it, because there really are just so many stories. There's, I could write seven more books, honestly. I can definitely relate to exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, so it's like at a certain point I had to sit down and think, okay, well, whose story kind of gives a glimpse into this era the best? Like, who can I, who can I put here that can kind of represent what women were doing roughly in this time? You know, I think like Jake Feinler is a good sort of avatar for the 1970s. She's, she's in this, a specific position that was available to her. She made value out of what she was doing. She was there. There's a million other women that were at, at the at Mitra Corporation and at, uh, you know, at, at, at Bolt, Baranek, and Newman. Like, mm -hmm. there were women everywhere, but she's, she's, a good, she's a good story, and she can kind of stand for all of them as a kind of totem. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I cut, too. And I, I originally wrote the book in a completely different structure, and this is something that, like, I thank God my editor is kind and forgiving because I was using Scrivener, which is a book, mm -hmm. I mean, this is kind of inside baseball, but I was using Scrivener, which is this like very kind of hypertextual boutique writing software where you can kind of patch things together laterally. Mm -hmm. And I was writing, I was following these threads across the thematic journeys, and it, it wasn't chronological. Uh, I was writing, like, there was a whole section on community, a whole section on meaning, you know, like these kind of more abstract connections. And when I actually untangled it all and put it all in order, I realized I was missing like all these gaps because I had just been thinking about it in this much more kind of general, uh, conceptual, thematic way rather than just like a clean chronological history. And there's value in providing a clean chronological history, so I'm grateful that I restructured it. But you know, I was just poking around looking for the interesting mm -hmm. stories. You know, so a lot of I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I wrote that didn't make the cut because it was even though it was interesting, it didn't really speak to you know the larger story. 
because uh, I think th these stories, a lot of them have things in common. The same patterns and tendencies show up again and again, which is, you know, women doing these kind of quote-unquote lesser jobs, uh, discovering and articulating the value of those jobs, elevating what they're doing, and then and then that being somewhat taken away from them a little bit. Like in the early programming days, it's very secretarial. These early female programmers elevate the art form, and then and then the sort of institutional industry comes down upon them and says, like, oh, well, programming is, needs to be professionalized. We've got to call it software engineering now, and you've got to have all these degrees, and you can't just come in from, you know, you can't just do be like a someone who has like a domestic life. Mm -hmm. You have to go to computer science and study yeah. computer science, and you have to be like a proper classical programmer. Uh, and that happens, you know, that happens again and again. So, hopefully, I, I I demonstrated some of those tendencies without being too I don't know polemic about it. It's not polemic at all. Good, I mean, glad. not at all is the wrong word. But I just want to like it's evidence based. You know, yeah. it's like here are these stories. This, these are the things that happen that tend to happen. Make of it what you will. <laughs> I think it's one of the best um, tech history books of the year, the era I cover. Oh, that's really <laughs> I'm, nice. Thank I'm you. I'm being serious. That's, um, that means a lot. It's one of the best, and I've read them all. <laughs> I'll show you a picture of my office. I have 400 <laughs> books in there. Oh. Um, it's one of the best uh, tech history books I've ever read. Thank you. Jesus, that's amazing. Let's Thank plug you. The, the, it's Broadband, The Untold Story of the Women Who Made the Internet by Claire Evans. We don't know when this is going to be released, but March sixth. When, oh, whenever, whenever this is out, whenever you're listening to this right now, you can buy it. Yes, even if it's pre-ordered, but go buy it. Uh, it's fantastic. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Okay. Thank you for writing it, Claire. Thank you for reading it. And thanks for coming on and talking about it. It's been a total pleasure. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.